My feeling is that new needs need new techniques, and the modern artist has found new ways and new means of making his statement. It seems to me that the modern painter cannot express this age, the airplane, the atom bomb, the radio, in the old forms of the Renaissance or of any other past culture. In the 1950s, the art scene was overcome by a brand new type of painter. He didn't succumb to the constructs of old faux pas brushes. No, this was an innovator, an inventor, a dancer who wheeled paint across the canvas, causing a storm of color that created huge works of fractal patterned textures. Jackson Pollock was a sensation. His art was so modern, so cutting edge, so unique, so now. But the interesting thing is that holding it all together was a piece of convention and tradition as old as the thing Pollock was trying to revolutionize. Canvas. It's not sexy to talk about, but responsibility, structure, rules, the canvas... I think those things are necessary for true thriving, true flourishing, and maybe even necessary for true creativity. See, we may hate the rules of the road, but for the most part, we all understand their purpose. If everyone drove like a leashless rage monster, we'd never get anywhere. Good rules of the road enable movement and health. That's why they exist. Not to restrict, but to enable movement and something better. Why does this matter to us? Well, because this idea, the idea of ability and responsibility, of power and limits, of faithfully wielding your gift for the sake of the other, this idea of canvas and paint, it is fundamental to what it means to be human to what it means to be created in the image of God, to what it means to be here. My name's Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. And in this episode, that's the question that we're exploring. This tension between ability and responsibility, between power and limits, between the canvas and the paint. Now, you might be wondering, why is it a thing that a show called The People's Theology would be exploring? Well, hopefully you'll stay with me because at the end, it will totally make sense to why this is a theological issue. Today's episode is going to be broken up into three acts. Small acts, but acts nonetheless. Act one is called All Hail the Guiding Star, where we'll take a small and strange trip into the world of North Korean film and cinema. Act two, God playing. We will look at the role of the justice system in the developing world. Finally, in act three, we'll ask the question, uh, why are we talking about this? And hopefully we'll draw all of the loose ends together discover why this is truly a theological issue, and more importantly, we'll realize what it means for us. 
完成から12年封印され続けてきた幻の傑作が今解き放たれた映画史に刻まれるこの歴史的事件を見逃してはならない The story I'm about to tell you is going to be hard to believe But before becoming the world's most famous dictator Kim Jong-il ran North Korea's Ministry for Propaganda and Film. As the most powerful son in North Korea, he had the unique privilege of experiencing world culture, where he fell in love with movies. Kim Jong loved movies so much that he had a museum movie theater built inside of a bunker to house his impressive collection, and supposedly it is still one of the most impressive collections today. His love for movies inspired the creation of a North Korean style Hollywood and the, the oppressively censored version of Sundance Film Festival. But at the same time, Kim was painfully aware of the fact that North Korean films were years behind Hollywood. The movies lacked depth, story, character, and development. While Hollywood is coming out with movies like Star Wars and The Godfather, North Korea is producing more films about people's love for the empire. And then more films about people's love for the empire. And then more films about people's love for the empire. And, well, you get the picture. Because the guiding star, one of Kim's many nicknames, loved movies so much, he decided to take it upon himself to fix the problem, to deal with North Korea's empty and shallow movie industry. Now, Comrade Kim, another nickname, had some options. He could have solved the problem by lightening censorship laws, exposing his people to the movies that he himself cherished. He could have opened the borders and allowed Hollywood film companies to invest in the budding DPRK film industry. He could have even sent some of his directors away, escorted most likely by military officials to train with big shots around the world. But what did he do instead? He kidnapped his favorite South Korean dictator and his beloved actress wife, enslaved them for 10 years, and forced them to make movies. What happened? Well, truthfully, for a time, while he held talented movie makers hostage, North Korea's movies were improving. So much so that they were able to introduce them to foreign audiences and submit them to foreign film festivals. But the problem is that in 1986, the iron willed brilliant commander, another nickname, lost his prodigies. And once again, he was trapped in a world of movies edited and produced without depth or substance. See, when responsibility overtakes ability, the outcome is legalism. The legalism of North Korea halted creative progress, halted the ability of its people. Not just in movies, even things like the Korean language in North Korea is years behind the language of the South. Because what happens when you restrict ability, you halt progress. Halt progress and you decrease flourishing, decrease flourishing and you increase suffering. Now, that may not matter much when you're talking about North Korea's film industry, but it most certainly matters to North Korea's agriculture and educational system, not to mention its closed border policy and persecution of Christian missionaries, both of which massively underserve the needs of the North Korean people. 
if you're listening to this, you don't live in North Korea, most likely. At least I hope not. But there are plenty of venues where you feel the trudging weight of overburdening responsibility. And sadly, the first image that often comes to mind when we think about this is the church. Because churches have been breeding grounds for distorted responsibility and legalism. Whether it's because of cultural expectations, pride, tradition, or a misunderstanding of the gospel, the message of freedom tends to be drowned out until the community is defined by rules. It is the same legalism that burdens churches, that slows down business, and adds red tape to government agencies. Certain limits and rules are helpful for true creativity and flourishing, yes, but rules and limits can quickly pile up. At some point, there's just too many boxes to check, too many forms to file, too many processes to go through for ideas to become reality. When that happens, creativity is snuffed while ability lays dormant. Put simply, responsibility over ability is slavery. What happens when the scenario is reversed? And it's not responsibility over ability, but it's actually ability over responsibility. An extreme but tragically common example of ability without restraint happens every single day in the developing world. In the book, The Locus Effect, civil rights attorney and founder of IJM, Gary Hodgen, explains how justice systems throughout the world are unable or even unwilling to provide the most vulnerable with the protections that so many of us assume. See, according to the International Justice Mission, 4 billion people in this world live outside the protection of the law. That means, quote, that their public justice systems, their police, their courts, and their laws are so broken, so corrupt and dysfunctional that there is nothing to shield them from violence, end quote. The lack of an adequate justice system means that there are no enforced limits rules, or structures. If someone wrongs you, steals your property, or violates you, there is nothing in place to hold that person accountable and therefore no reason for that person to stop their criminal behavior. This is what distorted ability looks like. Ability without restraint has consequences in every arena of life. This is what happens when an idea lacks a medium or when the rules of the road are disregarded. More seriously, the exploitation of children who are forced to work for pennies an hour in sweatshops is ability unencumbered by responsibility in business. Men who abuse women and children verbally, physically, and sexually are expressing distorted power on their families and neighbor. And even things like a disregard for commitments and promises, a lack of concern for others' time, or negligibly missing appointments are small, everyday misuses of ability. And here's the truth. When we do that, when we wield ability without healthy limits, well, we're playing God. Slavery and God playing. Those are the two extremes when we take ability without responsibility or responsibility without ability. But the question for us is, how does this define us? And what does this say to us? And what does this say about being human? Well, it all begins in the beginning. 
In Genesis 1.28, God creates humans and he commissions them to make something of the world. And this moment is often referred to by theologians as the culture mandate. And it speaks to the special task that the Creator gave His people, the task of tilling and keeping the earth, of joining with our Creator in the work of creating. Now humans don't create like God did. They don't create ex nihilo or out of nothing. That's His job. But He gave us the necessary ingredients to make something of the world. So humans don't create medicinal herbs, but we do use them to make medicine. We didn't invent the color blue, but we did create mediums to capture its essence. Using the gifts of God to creatively and carefully build on the foundation God has laid is the job of culture making. And it is also fundamental to what it means to be human, to be an image bearer, but to do it. To be human, to image God, to steward this work, we have to balance the tension of ability and responsibility. For us, ability is the power to make something of the world, the power to steward God's gifts and seek the flourishing of the world around us. Ability is the use of our hands and disposable thumbs. Ability is the creative consciousness to dream, to plan, and collaborate. Ability is the power to fulfill the mandate, to know the creator, to love the other. It is the gift of image-bearing. But ability may be the power to image God and fulfill the culture mandate. But actually fulfilling the culture mandate and imaging God is a responsibility. See, we have a responsibility to make something of the world, to take what God has given and push it to its full potential. Responsibility is the job of inventing, building, taming, and producing to the glory of God and the good of others. Responsibility is a call to cultivate the world well, to steward the gift in a way that preserves its resources for generations to come. Responsibility is using ability and power in a way that maximizes joy and goodness. Now, maybe where this becomes most important is an understanding that ability is the ability to choose, to choose how we wield our ability. Like in the garden, we have a choice. We can create and love in submission to the creator's structures, allowing his word to define what is truly good, learning from him what true flourishing looks like, or we can reject his wisdom choose our own definition of good, and cast off his canvas. Genesis begins with the creation of a perfect space, a sweet spot of ability and responsibility that enables maximum flourishing. The structural limits of the garden give the first image bearers a perfect canvas for creation, and their relationship to the creator empowers their ability in ways that exceed artificial limits. But what happens when they choose their own way to wield power the way they want to? Is the result more flourishing, more ability, more joy? No. Because when humans God play, but we play cruel gods. Now, we don't live in the garden anymore. Instead, we live in a world that is the result of human God playing, a place of pain and suffering and difficulty. 
But as image bearers, we still have a choice about how we wield our ability. And it matters in this world that is overrun by false God playing because the choice we make has an effect on the world, positive or negative. And so the question for us is what kind of power we will wield? Will we continue to God play? Or will we take up the responsibility of being image bearers? People like the true God who create and wield their own ability for the sake of flourishing, for the sake of others. Now, as you're listening to this conversation, I could totally understand the question about why this actually matters to us. Like, yes, we've talked about how it connects to being human, and yes, we've, we've connected a lot of theological dots, but maybe you're thinking that this is simply a bunch of theological gibberish, that it is only abstraction, simply ethereal, kind of other talk that's not really relevant for us. But the truth is, this conversation is fundamental to the choices that we have to make every single day. In a simple way, this is actually the conversation that we have to have about what sin is. What does it look like to to image God and follow his way versus what does it look like to wield our own power? And it's not just a conversation about us, but it is also a conversation about Jesus. See, the New Testament writers will tell us that Jesus came to be the perfect human, to image God perfectly. And then to invite us into that way. And the way of Jesus is the way of taking up responsibility, of wielding his own ability for the sake of others and for the glory of God. And what does it lead to? It leads to flourishing. It leads to the goodness of those around him. It leads, in theological language, the advancement of his kingdom, his reign of justice. And in being the perfect human, it's not that Jesus is doing something that we are unable to do, that he is coming to shame us. No, no. Jesus is showing us what it was like or what it should have been like for us, what it can be like to us. Jesus isn't extra human or superhuman. He is fully human. That what we see in the life of Jesus is what we were intended to experience how we were intended to live. So that is why this conversation matters. Why a conversation about ability and responsibility matters. A conversation about North Korean cinema matters. Because at the end of the day, this is a conversation about how we want to live. Do we want to be fully human? image bearers who live into the way of Jesus, into the way of our creator, who live for his glory and the flourishing of those around us? Or do we want to play God? Continue doing the same thing that we've always done, which has proven to be less than human, less than flourishing, less than just, less than good. Like for those in the garden before us, the choice is ours. 
This is The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, check out our website at www.missiodayslc.com. And thank you for listening. We launched this podcast just a couple of weeks ago with no real expectations, no knowledge of what would happen. And since then, we've literally had hundreds of listens. Thanks for subscribing. And if you've enjoyed this episode or previous ones, would you share it with somebody you think might enjoy it as well? Someone you think needs to hear what we're talking about, someone who has similar questions, or someone who wants to be a part of the conversation. Share it with them. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you have a second, rate us on iTunes. For some reason, it helps. Thanks for listening. Check back soon for another episode.